It is Friday, January 5th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, how a pandemic helped jumpstart a free meal program in Fayetteville. Basically, Donald Trump was paying me to run a socialist mutual aid kitchen and feed homeless people. Uh, he didn't know it, but it, it helped. <laughs> Plus, slowing light. I remember we started to see a little sign of slowing. We saw this light pulse starting to be slowed a little bit, and then we thought, oh. And a podcast about the pros and cons of language barriers. My desire to communicate, my playing accordion, figuring out some way of talking to people, that I ended up, you know, on stage in Mazari Sharif playing Johnny Cash for a room full of Afghans. First up, the news this hour from NPR. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art invites art enthusiasts to register for Printmaking with Paige Dirksen, an eight-week workshop designed for folks age 55-plus who wish to learn about different forms of printmaking and hone their skills creating unique prints. Classes take place Mondays, January 22nd through March 11th. Information and tickets at crystalbridges.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, January 5th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with me on this first Friday of the year. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF Public Radio, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Later today, we talk about the speed of light and the work it takes to slow down light. Ozarks at Large's Kyle Callums speaks to a physicist who did that, halted light. That's later on our show. First today... Arkansas is ranked 7th in the U.S. with citizens that are most likely to go hungry. One in six people face hunger in Arkansas, with one in five of those being children. The nonprofit organization May Day NWA is coming together to help feed and create community for those who face hunger in Fayetteville. Ozarks at Large's Victoria Hernandez spoke with those involved in the organization about their work feeding those in need. Every Monday night at Walker Park, from 6 to 8 p.m., volunteers and organizers are out serving the community. Through May Day Northwest Arkansas, Fayetteville's struggling working class can obtain a free meal and community connections. Since May of 2020, Alex Tripodi says he's been cooking for the community because everyone deserves food. Tripodi started the organization as a result of personal and political turmoil and trauma. When the pandemic hit, I was furloughed. I was uh, in the fine dining industry. And I didn't know what to do with myself, so I started cooking. I realized that with a little bit of seed money, I could leverage some connections I had in the restaurant industry to get free or close to free food and found a church to cook out of, uh, Trinity United Methodist Church. I had never met the pastor there uh, before the day I asked him if I could cook out of his church and five to ten minutes into talking to me, he gave me a key and said, we're not having service uh, due to the pandemic. Uh, God bless. The organization started as Mayday Community Kitchen. The original mission was to just drop off food on the doorsteps of people in need during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now they're doing more than just providing a free meal. Back when we were cooking out of Trinity United Methodist, we were ambitious. A lot of us were getting stimulus checks. Um, basically, Donald Trump was paying me to 
run a socialist mutual aid kitchen and feed homeless people. Uh, he didn't know it, but it, it helped. Um, and uh, uh, we, were, we were in a church. We were delivering these meals to people's doorstep. There was very little community interaction. And we realized that we were doing a great job of feeding a lot of people. We were doing a very poor job of building those connections and addressing those vectors of power and privilege. After the overturning of Roe v. Wade, May Day Northwest Arkansas reformed. Uh, that we could do something a little more low to the ground, a little more flexible, where we could pull up and address another community need if another Roe v. Wade overturn happened, for example. And where we could really focus on maybe be smaller in scale in terms of the, the, the amb- ambitions when it came to getting the food out, but more deliberate about forming those community connections, about meeting the individuals we were feeding, about learning about their needs and potentially addressing those needs or bringing in people to address those needs. Mayday Northwest Arkansas collaborates with other programs, such as those that provide clothing donations. When I went out to see one of their Monday meals, a representative from Legal Aid was helping people to sign up for Medicaid. Rachel Anderson started working with Mayday Northwest Arkansas in September 2020 as a volunteer and spoke of the need to add more community aspects to their work. Um, A lot of food programs are designed to like give out meals and kind of keep this like barrier between the people who are serving meals and the people who are receiving meals. In contrast to that, like what we try to do is create a sense of community. So you'll see, we'll sit down and eat with people out here. Like this is our dinner too. We're coming out, we're sharing a meal, trying to build community, try to build a point of stability for people and like be consistent to kind of try and help lift people up. A typical day with this new model starts early on Monday afternoons. One of our co-organizers, Chai, he like started the day by going to St. James Food Pantry. Um, It's run by Monique Jones. They help us out by giving us a lot of food resources. So a lot of the food we cook comes directly from St. James Food Pantry. Um, So he started the day by going there and picking up the ingredients we needed for the meal. And then we all met at the kitchen we cook out of. And uh, that was about 1.30, 2 o'clock this afternoon. Started just getting all of our ingredients prepped and get the cooking process going. We usually try to head out of our kitchen about 6 o'clock so we can be here by 6.30, set up, ready to, like, get everybody food. Um, But, yeah, so it's a lot of just, like, gathering ingredients and cooking them. Machias Talao is a sous chef at Atlas Fayetteville and a co-worker of Anderson's. Starting as a volunteer, he utilized his connections in the industry. I was like, hey, let me talk to Elliot and let's see if we can operate inside of Atlas's kitchen. Atlas, the restaurant, is a fine dining restaurant serving food inspired by cuisine from around the world. Because it's closed on Mondays, Mayday Northwest Arkansas is able to utilize their empty kitchen to feed those struggling to buy food. Talal works in multiple capacities now to get food on the table for the folks in need. So, um, yeah, basically my role is like I'm a co-organizer at this point, and uh, I basically brainstorm um, all the food, all the menu ideas. Uh, They they rely on me to push on all the food and uh, picking up the food and distributing the food. Is, is a responsibility of mine. Uh, basically, we're a team, and any responsibilities, um, responsibilities are on all of us. 
The three view their work with Mayday Northwest Arkansas as more than just volunteering. Their work connects on a deeper level. Rachel Anderson again. This was absolutely like the type of resource that I would have needed when I was, you know, growing up. Like I, my family didn't have a lot of money during like certain periods of our time. And like, yeah, there were definitely times where the only meals I was eating were like the free breakfast and lunch I got at school. Um, you know, hunger is a cause that is just like, I have experienced that and I know how stressful and how isolating and just like how painful that really is. And so like trying to address that need within the community that I live in feels really important to me and kind of like healing work for myself. Honestly, this isn't fulfilling to me. Machias Talau. Um, I don't think it's that fulfilling for Rachel or Alex. Basically, it's just a responsibility. It's like a personal responsibility and it's a personal personal philosophy of like, are you an able body? Are you, do you have this connection? Do you have this amount of privilege? Um, and if you do, like, how can you share it? And that's just my mentality and that's just the way I was raised. Um, and uh, basically they're like-minded people, so we clicked immediately. So like, honestly, we look at ourselves as like food distributors. You know, there's not a lack of food at all, especially being a chef for like four years. Like, there's not a lack of food at all. A lot of food gets wasted. A lot of food gets thrown away. A lot of food's just sitting, pallets of food are sitting um, just collecting dust um, and people really don't know what to do with it and that's kind of like what we do is like oh well we do well we'll just take it you know and then we'll just cook it and then we'll feed 50 people you know so you know that's kind of my philosophy and my okay. honestly my philosophy and like why I do this it's just a responsibility and like why not mm-hmm. you know for Ozarks at Large I'm Victoria Hernandez Later on our show, more creative ventures to help provide food for the community. This time, it's as simple as plugging in a fridge outside. I was reading Bon Appetit at home one afternoon, and I saw a friendly fridge type system had been created in New York, and it had spread through all the boroughs. And I thought, oh my gosh, like that would be amazing here. That could help so many people. That's in about 30 minutes today on Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. Reporting from outside of the United States is a challenge for a whole host of reasons. One of those reasons is often a language barrier, leading to miscommunications and phrases that don't translate well. Gregory Warner has been an international correspondent and reporter for NPR for many years and is the host of the podcast Rough Translations since its inception in 2017. I spoke with Gregory back in 2023, and our conversation begins with his first job out of college, where he was hired to interview prisoners in New York State who were on the mental health caseload. So at the time, I was I was a musician. I played in some piano bars, and I was uh, had a band, a couple of bands, and so I needed to make money. I was, and so one of the jobs I had was I was teaching prisoners uh, on Rikers Island here in New York. Uh, I was actually re- leading a magazine for prisoners. And somebody noticed, hey, you know, you have a way of talking to people that uh, puts them at ease and all that. So she p- she picked me. She was a professor of criminal justice, picked me to do this this job, which I didn't really know what I was taking out at the time. I figured, okay, this was, you know, you, 
you drive around to all these prisons in upstate New York and uh, talk to a few prisoners on the on the mental health caseload. These are people who are getting mental health services in the prison. But it's a very it's it's a, an experience that later I would think back to a lot because there's something very similar. What I was doing was not journalism, but something very similar to to not only doing journalism but specifically being a foreign correspondent. You're entering a place and walking into somebody's life. And they're completely exposed. Their cell is right there. You're asking them questions. Of course, they had to consent to me asking the questions first. But there was a real power differential, you know, between me and them. And they would answer my questions. And uh, I would just ask what was on the survey and all that. But I would try to get to know people and put people at ease. But, you know, one of the things I tried to do, I thought this was the polite thing to do, was to not notice the bars between us. You know, just to pretend they weren't there. I was like, yeah, just two people having a casual chat. And um, I think there was this one moment when uh, I accidentally noticed the bars between us because I put my pen down on the bars and uh, the the guy looked at the pen and I looked at the pen. He looked at me. I wasn't supposed to pass anything like a pen theoretically could be a weapon. So that was a mistake on my part, but it did teach me a lot about uh, what it means to just say, hey, listen, there's something between us. I know it's there. You know it's there. Uh, it's affecting this conversation. Let's just acknowledge it and then move past it. And that was a really important lesson for me in becoming an international correspondent because oftentimes uh, you're talking to people who um, you know, have a different passport or a different language or a different power differential or they can't leave the situation or the war or the crisis that they're in and you can. And I think it really helps to just acknowledge that and to understand how that's affecting the answers to the questions you're asking. Uh, you were a freelance reporter before joining NPR, uh, reporting from conflict zones. You were later NPR's East Africa correspondent. I feel like there's a distinction between the kind of reporter who wants to be an international reporter and the kind of reporter who wants to go into conflict zones. Is there is there a distinction for you? <laughs> well, um, you know, I never felt like I wanted to go into conflict zones. And it's odd that Afghanistan was actually my first foreign posting. Um, I had traveled internationally, but that was really, I, I lived for two years in Afghanistan between 2007 and 2008. And uh, this was a period of, the, of not the most intense part of the conflict, but certainly the war was going on. Right. I didn't really see myself as a war reporter, but rather I was, I was just really interested in trying to tell stories about people under duress in a situation which was like a war. And frankly, this sounds bad to say, but because of the war, Americans were interested. You know, you could get Americans interested in the stories of an ordinary Afghan because there was a war going on. So it wasn't so much that I was interested in covering war, but I was, I was essentially following the war as a way of uh, telling those kinds of stories. Right. It was kind of like a, it helped to give some sort of perspective and setting to the way you reported. Yeah, I mean, for example, I mean, the, just to give you a kind of person I was at that time, and maybe still am, I I was very nervous before my first trip to Afghanistan. You know, I traveled, but I had never traveled to a war zone before. Uh, I didn't speak Dari. I didn't feel, you know, whatever you meant when you said a war reporter. I didn't feel like I, I was a war reporter, whatever that is. And so 
I thought, well, um, I don't speak Dari, but I do speak, I do know the language of music. I knew I am a musician. So I figured I'd bring my little accordion, this tiny little red accordion that I'd, uh, that I'd acquired. And I figured, okay, this would be a way of connecting with people. Uh, when I first got to Afghanistan, I remember I pulled it out that first week, played it for some people and I was playing some songs and they said, how do you know Afghan music? <laughs> I said, uh, no, no, this is not Afghan music. It's a song that my mom used to sing, you know? And they said, no, 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 that's an Afghan song. And uh, I said, no, it's not. I'm sure of it. And what it ended up, I ended up getting on the trail of a guy who was affectionately known as the Afghan Elvis. He was a huge dude. He was like uh, Frank Sinatra plus, uh, anyway, he was, he was the biggest star in Afghanistan right before the Taliban. He used a lot of melodies that are, you know, known in American songs, but he was also stolen from. There were melodies, the U.S. melodies that were borrowed from him. Mm. So he was, he was quite important, but it was because of my desire to communicate, my playing accordion, figuring out some way of talking to people that I ended up you know, on stage in Mazari Sharif, playing Johnny Cash for a room full of Afghans, putting this out in a, in a story. And imagine this is a moment when everybody's talking in Afghanistan about burqas and Taliban and poverty. And then, you know, here I am uh, showing a different side of Afghanistan, not on purpose, just stumbling into it. So I, I do think it's, it is fun to engage with people, not in terms of war, but in terms of, uh, you know, their human stories. Yeah, I I'm a musician as well oh. and I find that I find that so often music is such a disarming way to interact with someone who, you know, may see the world differently, who may interact with the world differently, have had different experiences. Um and it sounds like you find that a lot through your work too that music can be a way to make someone more comfortable being around someone who looks like you in a foreign land. Oh, I, I completely agree. And I also think music is a, is a good, is a good metaphor for, for the sort of cultural borrowing and the cultural exchange that I'm really very interested in. You know, I mean, that Afghanistan story that I told you, that's certainly not unusual. There are, you can find your music in the music in another place, but you can also learn, you can also understand, and the more you study it, how it's been adapted and changed and translated. And so I think it's it's not only, there is, of course, the universal language of music, quote unquote, but there are also um, our own cultural expressions and the way in which those have borrowed from each other over the years. And um, that can be an interesting way of exploring, you know, as well and getting to know each other. Let's talk about the podcast, Rough Translation. Can you give a quick description of the show and how did it come to be its own entity with NPR? Yeah. So I started Rough Translation. I was pitching Rough Translation around 20, 2016, and our first episode was um, was launched in 2017, the very next year. So the premise of the show, I mean, look, there were a couple of different origin stories, but I'll tell you just just say two of them. One is that I had been a foreign correspondent or an international correspondent for a number of years. And um, in all those places, you know, whether it was Rwanda, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, Ukraine, I had seen the pace of modernization and internet culture 
really change uh, things. I mean, someone once told to me, they said, you know, a 19-year-old Kenyan has more in common with a 19-year-old American than a 42-year-old Kenyan. And it was a it was a it was it was the way in which we're all sort of part wherever we live part of an internet culture as well and so even though it seemed that people were all on facebook at the time or or all able to communicate with a single click at that it almost highlighted the way in which it was was very difficult to understand each other and the way we were actually not understand even if we could translate the words not really understanding where people were coming from i had a particular experience of this in ethiopia with Secretary of State, then Secretary of State John Kerry, he was over in Ethiopia, and he had, he had, he was giving a press conference, and he kind of went off script, and instead of just asking the the assembled reporters, the state-sponsored reporters for a question, he kind of, he said, hey, uh, you over there, you can ask a question too, you've been waiting, and he picked on some, you know, he, he picked some uh, independent journalists who asked a very controversial question about some arrested journalists, but he, he used the phrase, serious are you going to be serious and serious in in, Afghanistan, in Ethiopia does not mean, are you very serious? Or is it opposite of funny? But it means, are you going to put money behind this? Anyway, he was not understood by John Kerry, at least at the moment. He kind of took a big risk and he was not understood by the Secretary of State that he hoped to reach. He he suffered some consequences as a result. I mean, this, this Ethiopian journalist. And so the stakes of translation and of being understood felt to me very acute. And then I did that story in two places. I did that story from that from that press conference for All Things Considered. It was like a four-minute story, ran in All Things Considered. And, uh, you know, came, went. And then I did that same story for Radiolab at a slightly longer length, maybe eight minutes, nine minutes. The Radiolab story or that episode was the most downloaded episode of that year. And the All Things Considered story, you know, it the way news is, it came and it disappeared the next day. And so it, it also just struck me that podcasts would be a way to, um, to really sit in stories and have them mean, mean something for people that, that's beyond just the news hook or the news of the day. Do you think that international reporting, uh, you know, you've spent most of your career doing this and it's at the heart of what Rift Translation is, is hard to deliver to an American audience? I think that international news is hard to deliver to an American audience because international news is, and we know this, is some of the least shared by social media. It oftentimes is at least packaged or seen to be something that um, I need to listen to or I ought to listen to as opposed to I, I, I want to listen to. I think there, of course, there are many, many great writers, reporters who are breaking those rules, but that's unfortunately the thing that we're dealing with. But... What I learned in Rough Translation was that, that what most surprised me about the podcast was the audience we got. Not only the numbers, but the diversity of the audience, the youth of the audience. And so if I had a, something in mind about the quote-unquote typical consumer of international news, I did not feel that this, the demographic of the, of, of the, of the Rough Translation listener was limited to that. It, was, it has been a very, very interesting, very diverse, very thoughtful crowd who, who, you know, have told us that um, they see themselves in these episodes in ways that are not, uh, that they don't feel seen by other shows. And so I do think that, yeah, we may talk more about this, but I think our approach to it is not to frame it as the news. 
our approach to it is to think of it as maybe we're not a travel show, but if you think about kind of what's so interesting about travel and what can be so transformative about travel, you know, it's those moments where you felt, wow, the world is so different than I thought it was. I'm different than I thought I was in this context. It's a bit, it's a bit dizzying, but a bit exhilarating to feel yourself in a different cultural context. And so that's the, that's the emotion we're, we're going for. And of course, you know, when you're working in a podcast forum and you have more time, you have more space than you do when you're working in a news format, you're able to to bring that out a lot more. I feel like there's, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's some shared sensibility with a show like Planet Money, where a show like Planet Money is something where I would say four out of five episodes, I don't know what they're talking about coming into it, but I want to learn it and I'm interested in learning it because I trust the storytelling that they do with that show. And it feels the same way with what you do at Rough Translation is that, you know, I may not know the culture. I may not know much about where you're telling the story from, but I know that by the end of the episode, I'm going to have a better understanding. And I may not fully understand it, obviously, but I feel more, um, I'm, I'm interested in going further. Do you feel like there's that sense of, of uh, what you're trying to approach with the show? Oh, yeah, definitely. I have a special indebtedness to Planet Money because when we were first starting out and NPR wasn't really sure that they would uh, this would succeed, uh, Planet Money said, well, listen, because I'd worked for, for that show before, I've done episodes. They said, well, listen, if, it, if the episodes aren't good enough to be its own feed, we'll just run them as Planet Money episodes. <laughs> it was a little bit of a safety net, so at least NPR knew that they were going to get some episodes out of it. I think Planet Money is very conscious about saying that they want to be interesting. They want to appeal both to people who are economists and think about economic news all the time and those who the only economic show they ever listen to is Planet Money. That was definitely a model. And so we're not a show that's about any particular place in the world. We're not uh, We're not saying, oh, you're going to tune into because you're super interested in Ukraine, although we've done quite a few stories about Ukraine. But if you're listening to Ukraine, uh, you're listening to our Ukraine stories, you can be Ukrainian and you can learn something from it. I, we actually, just our most recent episode, we often play our episodes for people who are in an affected community. And I sent it to some Ukrainians I know. We did a, a story uh, called The Cat Must Still Be Fed. And she wrote me and said uh, she was crying, walking down the streets of Kiev, listening to this story. And I thought, oh, my God. I mean, this story is about Ukrainians. But here's this Ukrainian and, uh, and her boyfriend who were both listening to the episode. So I, I think it's so important to just try to appeal to both the newbie audience or the audience that knows nothing and the audience that knows too much. One of my personal favorite episodes of the show is Hotel Corona, mm -hmm. and it came out pretty early in the pandemic. This was in May of 2020, and this doesn't happen very often to me, but I can like viscerally remember where I was and what I was doing the first time I heard this episode, and I thought, oh man, like I really hope I can tell a story this well someday. Oh, wow. Uh, can we talk about how you came about this specific story and some of the logistics of being an international reporter during a global pandemic? Yeah, 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 for sure. So this story came out, actually, I was thinking about this story because, you know, you mentioned it and I was thinking about the origin story of this episode. And it actually started long before we ever heard the story with just a theme. And I know Ira Glass uh, has, has spoken about this, but one of the things he talks about finding stories is first you imagine what the story might be, and then you go and see if there's a story like that. So it's some, in some sense, this, the origin story was like that. I was in 
my pandemic existence in New York, not seeing other people, but also suddenly instead of going to the office, I was at home and I was spending a lot more time with my with my wife and kids than I, than I would normally spend during the day. And it was just, it was, I was thinking about not only the isolation of the pandemic experience, but the ways in which we're also kind of the, I wouldn't say it forced togetherness, but sudden overmuch togetherness with people who you didn't used to spend time with as much. And more, more than one's own family, I was thinking, so my first thought was, let's find a hostel because, you know, international folks, they come there for maybe a day or two. And then all of a sudden they're just stuck there because they can't leave the country. And so they're just stuck in a hostel for months. So that was my initial thought about a story that would be interesting to explore um, that side of the pandemic. And so I was looking around for that kind of story. And at the time I had heard, um, actually a friend of mine said, oh, you should, read, you should meet this Israeli comedian who was stuck in a hotel in Jerusalem for recovering, for people who had been diagnosed with COVID and were recovering and they were still contagious. So they needed to be in, isolated in this one hotel, but all of them were together. And she's posting on Instagram about it. It's really interesting. So just as she said that, I reached out to Daniel Estrin, our Israel correspondent, and he he said, oh, I'm, I'm looking at this. I think he was looking at the same story or he'd heard about the same thing. And, uh, you know, sometimes if you're a busy correspondent, you're working on 10 different things at once. And he said, oh, but if you're interested in this one, I'll spend some time digging into it. I said, great. And he did. And um, he went over there. Daniel Estrin's uh, uh, marvelous at going over places with uh, with home-baked cookies. This is one of his uh, one of his reporting tools. Music and cookies. Music and cookies, crucial. So he, I think he came over with some cookies and talked with the comedian, and then then we ended up really understanding. Okay, this was a story we wanted to follow. A new season is coming out this summer. What can listeners expect to hear? This season, I'm really excited about it. It's the story is about well, as you know, in, it takes place in India, and in India, love marriage, marrying across caste, cross faith is against tradition. And oftentimes couples who fall in love across these dividing lines will be, if not persecuted by their parents, then by the community at large. And the worst of this is there's something called honor killings, where where couples who try to elope together or fall in love with each other across these lines are killed. And sadly, that's not even listed as murder in the Indian in large parts of the Indian Penal Code. So our story is about a guy whose job it is to protect these couples. He calls himself the Love Commando, and he will defend these couples. He shelters them. He gives them free food, protection, but also a kind of moral support. But then this guy is arrested, and some of the couples that whose lives he saved are actually saying, thank God he's arrested. And so then the question of the story becomes, wait a second, who was he really? What was going on? Was he the angel of protection that he presented himself to the to the public as, or was something else going on in the shelter? And you know, it's, a, it's also a very universal story because it's about getting married, choosing love against the wishes of your parents, feeling very alone, and then some of the exploitation that can happen in that alone space when you're trying to figure out your new life together. NPR recently announced cutbacks across the board, and one of the casualties of that trimming, unfortunately, was rough translation. We'll still hear the new episodes this summer, but what's next for you and what's next for the show? You know, that is something I'm still trying to figure out. I mean, the good thing is I'm, I'm working on the season. This is a season we've been working on for a while, so that's taking a lot of my time. I can tell you that 
rough translation kinds of reporting is something I did before I started the podcast, and it will be something that I will continue. And one of the kind of amazing things about, I don't want to say amazing things about this period that I'm in, but the funny thing about getting fired and having your show canceled and having the be in the New York Times and even having The Onion write about it uh, <laughs> is that a lot of people write you and a lot of people sort of reach out and people who are you know, fans of the show or had a relationship with the show that as a result, I just never met. I didn't know them. I mean, it's unfortunately podcasting is so one way. And even though we we're constantly asking people to write us and send us your rough translation stories. Yeah. It's not always easy to hear from people, but suddenly if you, if you need help, people say, okay, wait, uh, rough translation is something that I, I really believe in. And I, I want to help. Um, I want to help support, you know, what this is and what you guys are doing. So I don't know. The simple answer is I'm not sure what's next for me or for the show, but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic and I, I'd, I'd love to come back to you and tell you, okay, this is it. And this is what we're going to do. Gregory Warner is the host of Rough Translation. Gregory, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for the great questions. Appreciate it. Do you have a story to tell? Come by the Listening Lab at KUAF and share it with us. All you have to do is go online to KUAFListeningLab.com and click on Share Your Story. And after submitting your request, we'll reach out to schedule a time for you to come by the KUAF studio. And you can listen to past conversations from the Listening Lab anytime at KUAFListeningLab.com. We know the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. Dr. Lena Howe, the Mellencrot Professor of Physics and Applied Physics at Harvard, led a team that first slowed a beam of light, then stopped a beam of light. Dr. Howe delivered the 25th Robert D. Maurer Distinguished Lecture in Physics back in 2023 on the University of Arkansas campus. She also came to the Carver Center for Public Radio on that visit. She says the breakthroughs in the lab at Harvard came with the help of a small sodium cloud they created, a very cold cloud. Super freezing cold. It is uh, temperatures uh, on the order of a millionth to a billionth of a degree above absolute zero. I have seen it described as a cloud. Does that mean it's hovering? It's, it's yes. above ground? Really? Yes. So we have we actually have the whole thing in a vacuum chamber. because And the reason is we want to uh, uh, pump it out is we don't want to have this sort of background room temperature uh, atoms uh, banging around and hitting our cold atoms and, and heating them up. So it's all in, in a vacuum chamber, in, in a vacuum vessel. And uh, and then we sent the lasers in uh, through windows uh, in that vacuum uh, vessel and then hit the atoms. Uh, and uh, these laser beams will then suspend the atoms. So they're actually hang- hanging freely suspended in the middle of the vacuum chamber. So when they are cooled, we can actually see the atoms by eye when we have these super cold atoms. Uh, it looks like a little sun you know, a one centimeter cloud of atoms that's uh, fluorescing uh, yellow, uh, hanging freely suspended in the middle of the vacuum chamber, and we can just look through the window and see these atoms. So I'm imagining this lab or this chamber or this, this workspace. So you have a window. Yes. And you're watching this. Yes. Happen. Yes, in real time. You, you first slowed light in the early 2000s, is that right? Yeah, the first, uh, we published, uh, you know, we, we slowed light to the speed of a bicycle. And then we said, okay, now it's time to publish. 
<laughs> and so it was published uh, in 1999, okay. uh, the, the, the first low-light experiments. So how many people were there to witness this? Do you remember? Yes, we were. Um, we were uh, three in the lab, me, my postdoc, and my grad student. And, um, and uh, of course, I mean, these experiments, we first have to cool these atoms and create this very, very cold cloud of, of cold atoms. And then we start to have to hit these cold atoms with other laser beams precisely tuned to exactly the right wavelength. And then we have to send a light pulse in and get that light pulse to slow. And it's tricky experiments, as you can probably imagine. Uh, and of course, you end up uh, work all day and then into the night. And then, of course, everything happens 4 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> and we were in the lab. And, and I, I, I remember we started to see a little sign of slowing. We saw this light pulse starting to be slowed a little bit. And then we thought, oh, but we still have to do a control experiment. We have to be sure that nobody uh, hit the knob on, on the, uh, our oscilloscope, right, that we, we used to, to recording, because, because that could have changed the time axis, so it looked like slowing, but really wasn't. So we had to do a control experiment. So we had to do the whole cycle once more to do a control without atoms to see, okay, no, no slowing versus slowing, right? And that two minutes seemed like forever. And then finally, after two minutes, we got the recorded uh, light signal without atoms. Oh, boy, there was like, it was really slow, uh, slow light. So uh, we really had started to slow uh, light significantly. So that was like super exciting. So this is four in the morning? Yes, four in the morning. Can you sleep after that? No, that's really hard. <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> and, and, and then you continue because now you start to slow, then you want to do better and, 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 and keep going. So, I mean, it, it would typically be noon before I would, I would get home. Uh, and then it's like you can sleep, uh, if you can sleep at all, you can maybe sleep a couple of hours and then you really want to get back to the lab. So, when you slowed to the speed of a bicycle, uh -huh. but you say, let's slow it more and you keep slowing it. Yes. And actually, in those first experiments, we slowed it a little bit, and then we got better and better at it. And then I, this, was in, actually, this was in the summer of 98, and, uh, and I remember I had, to, I had promised I would go and teach a master class in Copenhagen at the Bohr Institute. Mm -hmm. And it's like, hmm, I promised to do that. I really don't want to get out of the lab. But I had promised to do it, so I better go. So I, 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 went to, I had to go to Copenhagen for that week. And I remember sitting in the airplane from Boston, flying towards Copenhagen and thinking, oh, whoa, if I would send a light pulse off from Boston at the same time as I leave in the airplane, I would arrive one hour earlier than my light pulse in Copenhagen. And then eventually we got down to, to bicycle speed or rather we could uh, to, a, to a light speed where we could beat light on our bicycle. And then we thought, okay, now it's time to publish. Wasn't there a time when this was thought it couldn't happen? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so now we know it can. And in fact, you've stopped light? Yes. What does that tell us? 
Yes. I mean, that changes things or changes maybe the way we think. Yes. And and, and maybe I should also uh, move on a little bit oh, and say, so we have, uh, we, we could then also uh, stop the light pulse, as you say, right? Because one, once the light pulse is completely slowed, compressed, spatially contained within our atom cloud, we can then decide we can stop it completely. And... Uh, and and the light pulse itself actually writes it information into the uh, atom cloud as if it's a little hologram so we we can decide once the atom cloud is inside or, or the light pulse is inside the atom cloud we can decide whoops let's uh, stop this light pulse and turn it off mm-hmm. and we can do that in a way that the information is not not lost because that's already imprinted by the light pulse in the atom cloud that 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 little hologram and uh, and then we can decide, okay, now let's turn it on, and the light pulse will revive, turn back on, and then start moving as if nothing had happened. And that's not all, because then we said, okay, that's great, but, but let's see if we couldn't do better. So in our next set of experiments that we did some years later, we then stopped and extinguished a light pulse in one part of space, and then regenerated it in a completely different location and send it back on its way. And and that's the kind of point in time where my colleagues at Harvard would, would say, why would you even try such an experiment? Because it shouldn't work. Right. So what would you tell them? Why would you try it? Yes. So, so I mean, we really believed it would work sort of based on our, you know, modeling and calculations. But it was still, when it did work, it was still oh my God, what, how should we really think about this? How, how do we wrap our head around this? And it really took, you know, really pulling in all, you know, kind of all what's known of modern physics, really quantum mechanics. We had to pull in uh, quantum mechanics at all levels to explain this experiment. So, I mean, you, uh, it, it's weird for, for sort of, quote-unquote, normal people. Yeah. But even for my, from, you know, my colleagues were puzzled that this shouldn't work. Why, you know, why would you try it? What were the conversations <laughs> like the day or two after when, I don't know, you run into someone in the hall and say, oh, guess what happened at 4 o'clock yesterday morning? <laughs> I mean, what were those conversations like? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, because people were very puzzled why this would work, and we, we had, you know, just a bunch of great discussions, mm. and and that's that's sort of really fun when that happens. You you know, you're sort of um, uh, pushing theory and experiment sort of hand in hand, so it, it works in synergy, and I think that's in some sense where you get the most exciting science out when you can have these two uh, moving hand in hand. After this, that you have. You and your team, you've managed to do this. Do you look at like putting something together like from Ikea and think you might get frustrated and go, you know what, I can do this. If I did that in the lab, I can put this bookshelf together. Does it give you more sense of confidence? It, it does. It really does. Uh, and, and also, I mean, I, I, just, lo- uh, I just love... Uh, pretty, I mean, I'm very curious in general. And I also love technical gizmos. I mean, for example... Uh, you know, the uh, the TVs these days, you know, the high-def TVs, wonderful technology. And, and it just sort of fascinates me to, you know, learn about that, uh, putting a system together. And, you know, it, it so all kinds of, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, most of the world, actually. 
thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming to Northwest Arkansas. Well, thank you very much. COVID-19 pandemic forced a lot of community service providers to think outside the box. For the community members who distribute free food and meals for their neighbors, it meant taking the box outside. Just outside the specialty care entrance of the VA hospital campus in Fayetteville stands four containers. One is a sturdy outdoor shed with two doors about three feet wide and six feet tall with the words food pantry big letters at the top. Next to it are two smaller receptacles about the size of a filing cabinet. One is labeled as a drop-off for canned foods and the other for non-canned foods. And perhaps the most striking container is a refrigerator. It's hefty, stainless steel, and its label reads, Friendly Fridge. This was cool yesterday. Yeah. (laughs) Alyssa Snyder and Margaret Thomas are the founders at Seeds That Feed. Alyssa says the organization helps manage the friendly fridge at the VA, primarily through relationships with local farmers. Working to get excess, so things that they don't sell maybe at a farmer's market or to a retailer, um, and get that surplus out through the community um, into places, uh, especially where maybe people can't get out. Um, or, you know, maybe uh, aren't going to be frequenting a pantry. Um, So, yeah, just working that food out through the community, neighborhoods, um, senior areas uh, predominantly, um, you know, senior housing, things like that. And then now, yeah, um, through the friendly fridge system. She says during COVID-19, their food recovery work shifted focus. They began getting calls to recover food from walk-in fridges at restaurants who weren't going to be able to use it before it expired. They had heard about this new project at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Fayetteville. And we're like, oh, this is a perfect spot to drop off. My name is Caitlin Rush, and I helped jumpstart the Friendly Fridge project at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Fayetteville. Back in 2020, Caitlin was the parish chef at St. Paul's, where she managed and helped cook food for the community meals. She knew the community still depended on those meals and was trying to figure out a solution to keep feeding people. I was reading Bon Appetit at home one afternoon and I saw a friendly fridge type system had been created in New York and it had spread through all the boroughs. And I thought, oh my gosh, like that would be amazing here. That could help so many people. You know, we could start it at St. Paul's and then maybe it could grow. And I had an annual review with my boss and... (laughs) He, he said, okay, you know, give me goals for the next year. If you could do anything, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do this. I want to start this friendly fridge thing that I've, I've been reading about. And he said, okay, great. What do you need? And I said, actually, nothing, because I, I had an extra refrigerator in my house at the time. I'd been doing some meal delivery service to help people during COVID as well. And I just thought, you know what? I don't really need that. I'll donate my own. And he said, okay, great. What do you need? And I said, I just need somebody to help me move it. Let's, if, if we can, let's go take a look at the fridge. Is sure. that okay? Yeah. The parish chef at St. Paul's now is Grace Cleghorn. 
Ooh, I got some boxes I need to take care of. When we go out to visit the friendly fridge, there are two heavily dented cans of green beans on top of it. In all her glory. I'm gonna take those and throw them away. They're dented. Can't keep them. Oh, really? Botulism. Oh, right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Farmer's Market and St. James. That's what they do. So we've got... Uh... I'm pretty sure that this is some sandwiches and meat. I can tell you for sure. Hey there, we're about to get right out of your way. It is sandwiches. Sandwiches and vegetables. When she first started, Grace says she did a lot of the cooking, and on days when she wasn't, she would plan out the recipes for the volunteers to come in and cook. These days, Grace still does plenty of cooking, but most of her time is spent restocking the kitchen and giving space for volunteers who love making food for their community, using their own recipes. It feels so good to cook good food for people. And when you feel like you have that gift, then you want to do it how you want to do it. And you don't want somebody to tell you what to do, right? And that's really just what I learned, is these women know what they're doing. And I know how to cook too, but that doesn't mean that I should be telling them exactly, you know, how they should do it. I know the feeling that I get when I can just cook something that I want to do and people like it. Uh, and then I get to take credit for it. And that's your little moment. That's your little moment of glory. And the women that, that, that cook those meals on Mondays and Wednesday, they don't really take credit for it, but they know it was good. When it comes to the friendly fridge, Grace says St. Paul's has one job. So to keep that refrigerator running. The initial refrigerator broke down. by running, down. you mean literally like plugged in and keeping things cold. Mm-hmm. Correct. So the original refrigerator had a mural painted on. It was really cool. It died. Grace went to Lowe's to buy a new one, and when the store found out what they'd be using it for, they offered it at a discounted price and even delivered it in the middle of the ice storm of December 2021. The fridge still sits out there today. Grace says they initially thought about keeping a camera out there. Because we just wanted to see hands. We didn't want to see faces. Just a camera to point down because we thought it would be neat to see the amount of people that use it a day. But then we thought, you know what, that's infringing on people. And this is not about, this is not about casting any judgment about the people that come and use this refrigerator. Our job is to feed, and we don't care who comes and picks it up. Another church who works hard to feed their Fayetteville neighbors is Trinity United Methodist Church. And they use that word, neighbors, a lot. Beth Leverett is a member of the church and volunteers a lot of her time stocking their food pantry and preparing for Sunday meals. And I believe that I have two spiritual gifts, and those are hospitality and organization. So this food ministry perfectly fits the gifts that I have. It was just natural for me. The first time I heard about the food bank was that they needed volunteers to do the food pickup on Monday. So I signed up for that. A few days a week, Beth drives to local Walmart neighborhood markets who have food they can no longer sell but are still safe to eat. She uses that to stock their food pantry. Reverend Terry Gosnell says they first heard about the idea of a friendly fridge from St. Paul's. Told us about it because they partner with us for Sunday supper. And, and so somebody, I think I was on vacation, uh, called me from, from St. Paul and wanted to give us a refrigerator. And so that's how it happened, because they knew that we were a church that fed folks and 
wanted people to have accessibility 24 hours a day. When we went to visit the fridge that day, it yeah. was pretty barren. Well, nope. Oh, well, we have some tortillas. We also <laughs> get a lot of tortillas. So I think some of them end up out here after food pantry, yeah. Right now it doesn't have anything, but a lot of times it does. Yeah. That might sound concerning, but all of the different fridge managers I spoke to say the same thing. The fridge could be full, but come back in 30 minutes and it'll almost certainly be empty. That was the case at the friendly fridge at the VA as well. Margaret Thomas and Alyssa Snyder of Seeds That Feed have been working on ways to help patrons know when there's food in the fridge and have implemented an anonymous text service. Here's Alyssa. You know, putting up a flyer that says you can you can opt in to this if you if you choose. Um, and if you do, you know, you'll get an alert every time that we drop off. And we just say, hey, we just dropped off cucumbers, tomatoes, and here it is, you know. And um, it's been cool. A lot of people are texting back. Someone just texted back um, last night, um, thank you, and Cherokee. We're hoping, like, over time that we can, you know, create a little bit more um, two-way communication for anyone who chooses. But it's, it really is 100% anonymous and autonomous. Through some funding from the Walmart Foundation, Seeds That Feed has started thinking about taking the Friendly Fridge concept out of Fayetteville and into other towns in the region. They funded two last year and are going to be putting in an additional seven fridges in the next 18 months, including one at George Elementary in Springdale. So that'll be right outside their school, so it'll help the, the kids, the families, and then there's um, uh, neighborhoods just surrounding there that we'll be working to get the word out through there, too. So hopefully that one will be used by a whole bunch of different people, too. Yeah. When you started this deep in the midst of COVID, did you, did you ever think that, you know, that Walmart Foundation would be giving money to people to continue this project even further outside of, you know, your piddly little fridge that you and probably a rector brought to St. Paul's? Uh, there was always a glimmer. Like, I, I hoped that that could be true. But, you know, it was one of those things that I didn't want. I didn't want to turn it into something that it wasn't. I just wanted it to organically grow and be useful to those around it. I'm amazed and I'm super happy. Like, that funding can make a difference for so many people. And that's, that's just truly exciting. What's a message you might have for Caitlin? As you think about... Uh, the, you know, just the like spark of an idea and to see that you're getting money from the wealthiest retailer in the world, giving you money to put in seven more fridges in our community. Yeah. Um, yeah, just like, yay for reading an article and then jumping forward and doing it. That's what it's all about. That's how it starts. And then that's how things get bigger. And, and she may have thought it was yeah. something seemingly small that she could do easily, but it has created a pathway for a lot of people to have food. And I think that the community as a whole is very thankful for that. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF 91.3 Fayetteville. Contributors today included Victoria Hernandez and Kyle Kellums. Today's show was produced in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. We will be back with a brand new edition of Ozarks at Large on Monday. 
I hope you've enjoyed these last two weeks of curated shows that Kyle and I have put together for you. It was a real joy to put them together and revisit some of our favorite stories and conversations from 2023. Thank you so much for listening to Ozarks at Large. Have a wonderful weekend. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season at Walton Arts Center Saturday, January 20th with The Great Unknown, performing the world premiere of Aldo Lopez Gavilan's Oceans to Cross, featuring nationally acclaimed pianist Laura Downs. The evening's program will also include Samuel Barber's Symphony No. 1 and William Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony. Tickets and more at sonamusic.org.